Three weeks ago, we began a four-part sermon series simply entitled Countdown to Christmas. We began 4,000 years before Christmas, and we found ourselves in the Garden of Eden. Last week, we were 700 years before Christmas, and we heard the words of the prophet Isaiah. Today, we are nine months before Christmas, and we find ourselves in that little town of Nazareth. If you have your Bible, I invite you to take it and turn to the gospel according to Luke chapter 1. I'll be reading verses 26 to 38. Luke chapter 1 beginning at verse 26, concluding at verse 38. Once you've found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence for the public reading of God's holy word. Luke chapter 1, let's begin at verse 26. In the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, the town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You'll be with child and give birth to a son. You're to give him the name Jesus. He will be great. He'll be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be? Mary asked. Since I am a virgin. The angel answered. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she, who was said to be barren, is in her sixth month, for nothing is impossible with God. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May it be to me as you have said. Then the angel left her. May God add his richest blessing to the reading, to the preaching, to the understanding, and to the obedience of his perfect word. You may be seated. Of all the gospel writers, it is Luke who gives us the most detailed description of the birth of Jesus the Christ. His version is unique and unparalleled. Not only is Luke an accurate historian, but he was a doctor by trade. Undoubtedly, he had delivered hundreds of babies during his professional career. When he writes chapters 1 and 2, he, in a very masterful way, intertwines the birth narrative of John and Jesus. The birth of John the Baptist is great. The birth of Jesus is even greater. John will be called the prophet of the Most High God. Jesus is the Son of the Most High God. John will come in the power and the spirit of Elijah. Jesus will come and establish the throne of David both now and forevermore. The birth of John is remarkable, but the birth of Jesus is nothing short of miraculous. We are told in the opening lines of our passage that in the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to the little town of Nazareth in Galilee to 
the virgin that was pledged to be married to the man named Joseph. And the virgin's name was Mary. This is not the first time in Luke's gospel where we've been introduced to the angel named Gabriel. Earlier in Luke chapter 1, it was Gabriel who was dispatched from heaven and sent to speak to the priest named Zechariah, saying, The Lord has heard your prayer. Your wife, Elizabeth, she will conceive and give birth to a son. You're to give him the name John. He is going to be great. He's going to come in the power and the spirit of Elijah. He's going to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And the word of God happened exactly the way the angel foretold. Elizabeth, Zachariah's wife, became pregnant, even though she was well beyond childbearing years and said to be barren, yet she became pregnant. She conceived, and what was inside of her was a bouncing baby boy that we would call John the Baptist. Our passage says that in the sixth month, Gabriel was dispatched again. When it says the sixth month, it does not mean the month of June, the sixth month on our calendar. No, it's the sixth month, the second, uh, the, the ending of the second trimester of Elizabeth. While she is six months pregnant, Gabriel comes to Nazareth and he speaks to Mary. This one who is pledged to be married to the righteous man named Joseph. In those days, uh, marriage was a two-step process. There was an engagement period where a young girl was pledged to be married to a man. Typically, that engagement was a year long. At the end of that year-long engagement, then the wedding ceremony would make everything legal. But even the engagement was regarded as something that was binding because a divorce was required to even break an engagement in those days. During the first days of the first century, it was common for a young girl between the ages of 12 to 14 to be pledged or engaged to a man. I got to be honest, as a father of a 16-year-old daughter, that idea blows my mind. I can't even fathom Molly Grace getting married now, let alone when she was 12 or 14. Yet that was the custom of the day, that parents would see their 12 to 14-year-old daughter, they would find some man that would be a good son-in-law, and they would pledge her to him. That's what's going on in our passage. Mary has been pledged to Joseph. And elsewhere, the scripture says that Joseph was a righteous man. He was a good guy. And so uh, Mary was pledged to him, and she was somewhere in that year-long engagement period. The angel Gabriel said to her, I bring you greetings. You are highly favored. The Lord is with you. This greeting greatly troubled Mary. The word that's translated greatly troubled literally means that she was intensely interested she was curious about this. What is this that this angel is telling me that I am highly favored? The word that's uh, rendered highly favored, it means to be sovereignly selected for something special. To be favored in the Bible is to be sovereignly selected for something special. Mary is not the only character of the Bible to be described as favored by God. In the Old Testament, we are told that Noah was favored by the Lord. 
And certainly he was sovereignly selected for something special because it was Noah who built an ark for his family so they could survive the worldwide flood. Hannah was described as being favored of God. Gideon is portrayed as one who is favored of the Lord. King David is portrayed and described in sacred scripture as favored of God. But each time that word is used, it describes someone who is sovereignly selected for something special. And certainly Mary is being chosen for something that is extremely special. She is highly favored. The Lord is with her. Gabriel says, don't be afraid. You are going to have a child. You will have a son. You're to give him the name Jesus. He will be great. He's going to establish the throne of his father, David, both now and forevermore. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. In other words, this birth announcement says that Jesus will be born and nobody will outmatch him and no one will be able to outlast him. He will establish a kingdom that will last for all of eternity. He will establish the throne of David for now and forevermore. This is a great, great message. And Mary responds to this astounding birth announcement by simply saying, how can this be? How can this be? To say that Mary is shocked is an understatement. She is completely shocked by what Gabriel is telling her. Now, she's not surprised because for the first time, God has broken his 400-year gag order. What surprises her is not that the baby is going to be named Jesus, which means he will save his people from their sins. She is shocked, not because he's going to be great, not because he's going to establish the the throne of his forefather, David. She's not shocked because of his kingdom, there will be no end. She's shocked because she's going to be pregnant. Are you kidding me? This is crazy. How can this be since I am a virgin? This is the third time in our passage that Mary is described as a virgin. In fact, We hear that she's a virgin twice before we even know her name. That the angel Gabriel is sent to Nazareth to speak to the virgin who is pledged to be married to the man named Joseph. The virgin's name is Mary. Before we hear the name Mary, we hear her pure condition that she is a virgin. And then when we come to verse 34, once again, she asks the question, how can this be since I am a virgin? She's shocked. She's amazed. She's perplexed. She asks herself, this is humanly impossible. How can this be since I am a virgin? Throughout the ages, there have been some who have tried to deny and discredit the virgin birth of Christ. People have said, listen, as long as we have Mary and Joseph, the star in the stable, Bethlehem, Uh, the shepherds in the field, the wise men who come bearing gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. As long as we have all those characters and components, that's really all that we need. We don't have to really emphasize this whole notion about a virgin conception and a virgin birth. We don't really have to emphasize this. And so there've been many throughout the ages who have tried to discredit and disbelieve the virgin birth of Jesus. This morning, I wanna submit to you that if we dismiss the virgin birth, not only 
do we lose something significant in the Christmas story? But I would say we hold hostage the very gospel of God. This is central to our understanding of who God is, who Jesus is, and why he came to this world. This is paramount. This is pivotal. This is extremely important for you and I to cling to as we think about the Christmas story. How can this be, Mary asked, since I am a virgin? Those who want to discredit the virgin birth, they will say, in the original language of Hebrew and Greek, which are the two languages of the Bible, in both of those languages, the word that's translated virgin can also be rendered a young girl or a young maiden. And while that's true, that in both Hebrew and Greek, the word that is translated virgin can either mean a literal virgin who's never had sexual union, or it can mean a young girl. While that is true, I want to tell you this morning that Luke is clearing away any ambiguity. He wants to make it crystal clear what he means when he writes these words and tells us this story. When Mary says, how can this be, since I am a virgin? Literally, the Greek text reads in this way. How can this be since I do not know a man? How can this be since I do not know a man? It's not merely that she's young. It's not merely that she's 12 to 14 years of age. But this young girl has never had sexual union with anybody. I do not know a man. Now, when she says, I do not know a man, she's not saying, I don't know the difference between male and female. She's young, but she ain't that young. She knows the difference between a man and a woman. When she says, I do not know a man, she's not saying, I don't know the difference between male and female. She's also not giving a sarcastic jab to her future husband, Joseph, as if he's a pathetic excuse of a man. I don't even know a man, and even the guy that I'm with is not really a good man, and his name is Joseph. No, she's not saying that. In fact, she will say with salt and pepper, what a man, what a man, what a man, what a mighty good man, because Joseph is a mighty good man. She is not saying that Joseph is some poor excuse of a, of a guy. When she says, I do not know a man, in the Bible, to know is to know intimately. It is to know sexually. So that Adam knew his wife Eve. She conceived, gave birth to a son. Abraham knew Sarah. And Jacob knew Rachel. When Mary says, how can this be? For I do not know a man. What she's saying is, I have never had sexual union with anybody. I, I do not know Joseph in that way. I have not known any man in that way. How can this be? This is humanly impossible. I, I don't know a man. I, I, I've never known a man sexually. So what Luke is saying is not only that she's young, but she is innocent. She is pure. She is a virgin in a literal sense. How can this be? Gabriel answers the question. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The Holy Spirit will overshadow you. What's conceived inside of you will be a holy child, the son of God. Luke is extremely discreet in his description. But I want to tell you this morning that in no way 
Is this risque or perverse or nasty? There are some stories in mythology where the gods come down to earth and have sex with women. This is not what Luke is describing. Luke is not describing a portrait where God comes down and has sex with Mary. He uses intentional words. He says the Holy Spirit will overshadow you. That word overshadow means encompass. It means to surround. And this remarkable event is described with one word, holy. What is conceived inside of you is the holy son of God. There is nothing unholy about this. There is nothing risque or perverse or deviant about it. There is nothing immoral about it. This is a holy description of a miraculous event. And nowhere in the process of conception or the delivery did did, did Mary have her virginity compromised? Let me say that again. At no point in the conception or the delivery did Mary have her virginity compromised. We affirm the virgin conception of Christ and the virgin birth of Christ. This is a point where we do differ at this moment with our brothers and sisters of the Catholic faith. For the Catholic Church teaches the perpetual virginity of Mary, that Mary was always a virgin. We don't hold to that because it's nowhere taught in the scripture. In fact, the opposite of that is portrayed in sacred script. Matthew chapter one, verse 24. When Joseph wakes up from his dream, we are told that Joseph took Mary home to be his wife but he had no union with her until the child was born. That union is sexual union. So he had no sexual union with her until after Jesus was born. But then, by implication, the scripture tells us that Mary and Joseph had a normal marital relationship and the fruit of that normal marital relationship were half-brothers and half-sisters of Jesus. And you read of them all throughout the gospel and throughout the New Testament. So, so Mary never had her virginity compromised in the conception and the delivery of the Christ child. This is called Daryl Bach in his commentary on the Gospel of Luke to simply say this. Our God can bring something out of nothing. He can speak and that which was not becomes something that is. He can bring life from the dust of the earth, breathe into the nostrils of man and man becomes a living creature. And if God can bring life out of the dust of the earth, Daryl Bach says, surely God can bring life out of a virgin's womb. It was St. Augustine who said of the incarnation, it is God sinking himself down into our flesh. This was a holy act. The deposit of the son of God, the word of God made flesh. There's nothing perverse about it. There's nothing risque about it. And the angel Gabriel says to Mary, the spirit of God will overshadow you, encompass you, 
And what's conceived inside of you is the holy child, the son of God. There have been many throughout the ages that have tried to downplay this. Discredit, even deny the virgin birth. And for the next few moments, I want us to think critically about this. If the virgin birth is not true, what do we lose? If the virgin birth is not true, if it's just a a fringe doctrine that we don't really need to cling to and hold on to, if the virgin birth is not true, then what do we lose? If the virgin birth isn't true, then the Bible is unreliable. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, following the fall of Adam and Eve, it is God who has a conversation with the serpent. And God says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. You will crush or strike his heel, but he will crush or strike your head. In other words, the Lord says to Satan, Satan, you will deal a painful blow to the offspring of the woman, but the offspring of the woman will deal a fatal blow unto you by crushing your head. Now the word offspring in the ancient text is the literal word seed. And seed is not only seed, Singular, which means it must have some specific person in mind. But not only is it singular, but when you think of it, the Lord says, and the seed of the woman, but women are never described as having a seed. Women are described as having an egg. So even as early as Genesis 3.15, God is telling us there's got to be some supernatural conception that has to take place in order for the seed of the woman to come into the world so that that seed singular of the woman can crush the serpent's head. Even as early as Genesis 3.15, God is paving the way for the virgin birth. If the virgin birth isn't true, then scripture is unreliable. A place like Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14, it specifically says, the virgin will give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel. And Matthew tells us that Emmanuel means God with us. The scripture is very clear that according to the Bible, the virgin will conceive and give birth. And if the virgin birth isn't true, then the Bible is unreliable. If the virgin birth is not true, then Jesus is not God. If Jesus came to earth through the union of a man and a woman, then he is fully man, but not fully God. But yet the scripture says that Jesus is the God man. Not a man who became God, of which there have been none. Not a godly man, of which there have been many. But he's the one and only God man, fully God and fully human. So that Jesus says of himself, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. For I and the Father are one. In Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3, it says that Jesus is the exact representation of God the Father. He is the exact representation of God the Father. He is God in the flesh. If the virgin birth is denied, then Jesus is not God. If the virgin birth isn't true, there is no trinity. In order to be Trinity, you must have God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. Trinity, which is co-eternal, co-existent, and co-equal. The Trinity, even though the Word 
never finds itself from Genesis to Revelation. I'll give you that. You'll never find the word Trinity in the Bible, yet you'll find divine selfies snapped all over the place. All over the sacred scripture, you'll find God taking a picture of himself. And in that divine selfie, he's portrayed as God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Many places, let me just give you two examples. At the baptism of Jesus, it is God the Father who speaks. This is my Son in whom I'm well pleased. It is God the Son who comes up out of the water. It's God the Holy Spirit that descends upon God the Son in the form of a dove. Right there, there's a divine selfie where God takes a picture of himself and he always portrays himself as the triune God of grace and mercy. Not only there, but you also have Ephesians chapter one. In Ephesians chapter one, God gives us another uh, divine selfie of himself. He gives us a portrait of who he is. For the apostle Paul goes on a, on a, on a tirade. He goes on a, on a holy run on sentence of Ephesians chapter 1 verses 3 to 14 and in that run on sentence he simply says that God the Father has predestined you. God the Son has redeemed you and God the Spirit has sealed your salvation. Right there there's another divine selfie. Right there God takes a picture of himself and he always portrays himself as the Trinitarian God. If the virgin birth is not true then the scripture is unreliable. Jesus is not God and there is no Trinity, but it it gets worse because if the virgin birth is denied and it isn't true, then Jesus is not the creator of everything. Yet the Bible consistently says that he is the creator of all things. Both John and Paul give testimony to the same truth. It is John who says in the prologue of his gospel, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. All things were made by him. Not anything was made that has been made without him. Paul says in Colossians chapter one, that he is the image of the invisible God. He is the creator of all things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. The scripture says that Jesus is the creator of all things. Whether you see it or whether you don't see it, he is the author and the architect Of everything. If the virgin birth is not true, then the death of Jesus accomplishes nothing. Because if Jesus is a mere man and not the God man, then his death on the cross, while tragic, his death at crucifixion, while cruel, does not accomplish anything. Because the blood of a sinful man cannot cover and atone his own sin, let alone anybody else's sin. If Jesus is a mere man, he's just like you and he's just like me. And if Jesus is a mere man, if he's not the God man, then the death on the cross of Christ accomplishes nothing. Yet Paul says in Romans chapter 5 that God demonstrated his own love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That word for is there for a reason. And it's a good reason because Jesus died in our place. Jesus died in our stead. Jesus died as our substitute. Jesus died for us. And if he's just a mere man, he cannot die for us. If the virgin birth is not true, then how can you believe any miracle of Jesus? You read throughout the Gospels. And clearly, he is portrayed as a miracle worker. He opens the eyes of a blind, unstops deaf ears, enables the lame to walk. 
But the quintessential miracle that Jesus performed that's recorded in all four Gospels is his resurrection. And if the virgin birth is not true, then how can we believe the empty tomb? The scripture is very clear that Jesus died on a cross, that he went through the streets of Jerusalem, that the Roman soldiers stretched his arms wide and they raised him high. He breathed his last. He said, it is finished. They took his dead body off the cross and they placed him in the tomb. And then on the third day, every scripture writer says it, every gospel teller tells it, that on the third day, Jesus got up and he burst forth from the tomb. The apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that if Christ be not raised from the dead, we are still dead in our sins. If Christ is not raised from the dead. They're one of the most pity, pity people on the planet. If God is not raised from the dead, then we are a lost lot of individuals. Oh, my friends, I came this morning to tell you that the scripture is reliable, that Jesus is God, that Jesus is the second man of the Trinity, always existing, always co-equal. And I came to tell you that Jesus is the creator of all things seen and unseen. And I came to tell you that Jesus, his death on the cross secures your salvation. And on the third day, Jesus literally bodily, physically, got up from the grave. I'm here to tell you that Jesus is alive. He's ascended to the heavens and one day he's coming back to rescue his church. I gotta tell you that this is true. I believe it. And all of this, if, 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 if the virgin birth is not true, we don't just lose something in Christmas. We hold hostage the very gospel of God. And I came to tell you that the book is true. I came to tell you that Jesus was born of a virgin. He lived a perfect life. He died on the cross for your sins and for mine. And on the third day, he was raised from the dead. How can this be, Mary asked? Since I am a virgin, I do not know a man. I have not yet had sexual union with a man. I'm not married yet. I'm engaged, but not married how can this be? It's a human impossibility. How can this be? The greatest line that Gabriel spoke, and I'll submit to you, it's the greatest line he has ever spoken. For nothing is impossible with God. That's his answer. How can this be? Mary asked. And Gabriel responds in our passage, for nothing is impossible with God. How can it be that God would step out of heaven and step into earth for nothing is impossible with God? How can it be that the Christ child is the God man on the cross for nothing is impossible with God? How is it that God can save lost sinners like you and like me for nothing is impossible with God? How is it that God can make a way out of no way for nothing is impossible with God? How is it that God can give hope to the hopeless and help to the helpless for nothing is impossible with God? How is it that God can heal your body when the best doctors of the world have told you you got cancer all over your body, only got a couple more weeks to live, you better go home, put your house in order. 
I came to tell you, nothing is impossible with God. How is the God can open up a door of employment when every door has been slammed in your face? Nothing is impossible with God. How is the God can put a marriage back together that is broken and tattered and torn? Nothing is impossible with God. I came this morning just to tell you, heed the echo of Gabriel the angel. Listen to him as he says to Mary and he says to you, nothing is impossible with God. And as you end 2018, and as you begin 2019, I'll go on a limb and tell you that God's going to ask you to do something that's humanly impossible. God's going to want you to do something extraordinary. He's going to say, I've got plans for you that literally they're going to blow your mind. Yeah, I want you to do some things that are humanly impossible. And you, like Mary, will ask the question, how can this be? How can this be since I'm not qualified? How can this be since I don't think I'm able? How can this be since I'm too young? How can this be because I'm too old? How can this be fill in the blank? How can this be? And in that moment when you have that conversation with God, I just want you to hear the echo of Gabriel. Because he'll say it to you the same way he said it to Mary. Nothing is impossible with God. How to respond to that kind of God-sized task. Listen to the words of Mary. She simply says, I am the Lord's servant. May it be as you have said. I'm the Lord's servant. Really, that word is bondservant. She's saying, I am God's slave. I am his property. I'm at his disposal. He's the owner. He's the one that calls the shots. I am his. I am the Lord's servant. May it be as you have said. She responds in unwavering faith. In this moment, she's not concerned about what does Joseph think. She's not worried about what are mom and daddy going to say. She's not concerned or consumed with what the neighbors are going to say or what her reputation is going to be. She simply says, I am the Lord's servant. May it be as you have said, God, I'm yours. And when God calls you to a God-sized task that's beyond human capability, and you ask the question, how can this be? (laughs) The line of Gabriel is the greatest line he's ever spoken. Nothing is impossible with God. And may you simply reply, I'm God's servant. May it be as you have said. My greatest preoccupation of life is to please the Lord. My greatest desire, my most humble request is God, be pleased with me. I am the Lord's servant. May it be as you have said. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. And Lord, we acknowledge that there may be some people in this room who do not yet know you as Lord. And today I pray that you will open up their eyes unto your salvation. And Father, that they will come down and take a pastor by the hand and say, I have made a mess of my life. I need for Jesus to call the shots. I need to be owned and directed by him. Some people are here 
and they have accepted you by faith. But if I can voice their thoughts for there are times, Lord, when you ask us to do something and it scares us to death. And we wonder, how can this be? And Father, when we have that conversation with you, may we be reminded of Gabriel's words. Nothing is impossible with God. We are your sons and we're your daughters. We are your servants. So Lord, may it be in 2018 and may it be in 2019 just as you have said. In Jesus' name.